Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Matthew 26, verse 69 is where we will be. Let me ask you a question at the get-go. If you could be famous for something, widely known for something, what would you want that something to be? I used to desperately desire to be famous. Uh, as a young person, it's something that I wanted almost more than anything else. I wanted to be famous for a combination of my mad skills and my undeniable coolness, right? And so I first try to put both of those things in play through a pursuit of a sporting career of sorts. I, I wanted to play professional cricket. And yes, it's possible to play professional cricket with mad skills and undeniable coolness. I know that's hard for us uh, to imagine here in the United States, but it is actually possible. Turns out, though, I didn't have mad skills, um, and I didn't have an undeniable coolness. And so I had to give up on that endeavor for worldwide fame, especially on the Asian subcontinent where cricket is uh, played uh, by billions of people. And I set my mind to then becoming a musician. And again, I wanted to be famous for my mad skills and my undeniable coolness. And I even committed to Christ. I said, if I win a Grammy, I'll give him his props, right, on the stage. And I'd say, thank you very much for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, before going and breaking all 10 commandments at the after party like everyone does. Uh, it turns out again, though, I didn't have mad skills at music, and I didn't have undeniable coolness. And so it was a non-starter in my pursuit. But I desperately wanted to be known, and I desperately wanted to be noticed. And so I gave up those pursuits, and I went to work for a church, which is a really dark joke. Um, but at the core of that is that I, I wanted to be remembered for something good and meaningful in my time here on this earth. As I've gotten older, I've realized that fame actually is not a good thing, <laughs> and I don't want it at all. Fame actually looks really painful, uh, and, and I'm more persuaded than ever that fame comes at a cost that humans simply cannot bear, and so I wish we would stop pursuing it, and I wish we would stop placing it upon the shoulders of people and then pretending to be surprised when it crushes and destroys them. But, but, but beneath that desire for fame, I think there was something that's actually a, a good desire in all of us. I no longer want to be famous, but I do want to be well-remembered. And I want to be remembered for good things, right? I want to be remembered for my virtues and not just my vices. I, I want to have a legacy of faithfulness. And I think many of you want that too. I was at the memorial service of a wonderful man recently, and person after person told stories in remembrance of their beloved family member. He was remembered for love and good deeds and kindness and joy and commitment. It was incredible. And I walked out there refreshed and, and, and thinking of the ways that I want to be remembered. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? I ask you this at the beginning because in the text today, we're going to see one of the great heroes of the Christian faith, the Apostle Peter, being remembered, being famous for something that I'm sure wouldn't have been his first choice of legacy. You see, Peter is still widely remembered today as the wide-eyed zealot who radically overestimated his own commitment to Christ and who then denied him three times in the hour of his greatest need. It's such a painful story, friends. It's so painful. But as I've read it again this week, it has filled me with such hope. Why? Well, a few reasons before we get into it. Uh, firstly, it's reminded me afresh of the trustworthiness of the scriptures, right? I trust this book. I, I trust it is true because in part, it tells us the truth about what kind of people we are. What other sort of holy book <laughs> would constantly and painfully expose the failures of its heroes and of its leaders? The Bible is so honest about people. It has such a trustworthy anthropology. 
It speaks unashamedly about all of our image-bearing potential, about how beloved we are, about the good that we can, uh, can do and the beauty that we can create. And it does that without trying to hold back on that. It says people are amazing. But it also speaks of all of our fallen self-centeredness, and it does that without deflection or defensiveness. It speaks of how we are capable of dark and selfish and cruel acts. And so when I read these kinds of stories, I go like, there's me in there, right in that collision, undoubtedly beloved by my Savior, but capable of truly terrible things. What a strange thing it is to be a person. And the scriptures tell us about that strangeness. Uh, secondly, it gives me hope because it connected me meaningfully with the broken beauty of the apostle Peter. I love what Andrew Murray, one of my preaching heroes, said about Peter when commenting on the same text. He said, I thank God for the story of Peter. I do not know a man in the Bible who gives us greater comfort. When we look at his character, so full of failures and at what Christ made him by the power of the Holy Ghost, there is hope for every one of us, right? Peter's story is so real, so earthy, so relatable. I am often like Peter in his worst moments, right? And I know that many of you are as well. You see, we may be well-meaning and excitable in things of faith. I know that many of you are, and Peter was. We may really desire to honor and serve Christ. We're first in line, and he was. But also, we may too be too quick to speak most of the time. <laughs> we may too be too quick to turn to violent means when we're supposed to turn the other cheek. We may be too quick to compete with those around us, to miss the point, to center ourselves in the story, just like Peter did. We too may be too quick to fall in ways that we thought and said that we never, ever would. We create lines and then we cross them, thinking we never would have, right? But mostly this week, I've been hopeful reading and studying this text because I encountered in it again afresh the incredible grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we know the narrative arc of the life of Peter. We cannot help but wonder at the faithfulness and mercy of his Savior. It's almost too much for me to get my head around. My friend Aaron is preaching the same text today at our downtown congregation. We share sermon notes with each other through the weeks ahead of sermons. And Aaron and I have been texting each other the whole week just going, bruh, right? That's when you know theologians are being blown away, right? It's, it's, it's too heavy for just bro. It needs more formality, and so it's bruh. It's B-R-U-H, right? Uh, that's when you know there's about to be a theological mic drop. And we've just had so many bruh texts this week. Jesus is incredible. Bruh, the grace of Christ is too much. Bruh, there's so much hope. For Muppets and strugglers and failures like us, if there's hope for Peter, then there might even be hope for people like us. So let's just read together what at first looks like a purely tragic account. And then I want to come back and make four observations about Peter's denial of Christ. And I want you to put yourself in the midst of that. For you wonderful note takers in the room, God bless you right? You're such nerds and I love you. Um, you could be writing anything there, but it's encouraging to me to just pretend in my mind that someone's paying attention. Um, and so for those who are taking notes, here are the four observations I want to make about Peter's denial and how we want to um, learn from it ourselves. Observe firstly the motivation for Peter's denial. Why does he do it? Observe secondly the progression of Peter's denial. It, it, it progresses, it moves quickly. Thirdly, Notice the gracious pain of Peter's denial. It's pain, but it's as a result of Jesus' grace. And fourthly, notice the response of Christ to Peter's denial. Let's read together verse 69. It says, now Peter was sitting outside 
in the courtyard. Now, let me just give you some context, and we will deal with greater chunks of text. We're not going to stop every few words, but uh, Jesus is inside, right? He's inside the palace of the high priest. That At this point, he's being questioned, but he is visible to Peter. It has like big open doors that lead onto a patio and then to a courtyard and then onto outer gardens, and Peter can see across this courtyard, and he can see Jesus inside. Matthew's told us in verse 58 that Peter has followed, but he's followed at a distance, and that in this moment, he's actually sitting with the guards at a fire. It's a cool evening. It's, pre- it's before uh, sunrise. In fact, it's the early hours of the morning, and he's sitting at a fire with the very guards who will put Jesus to death. And now, just imagine the scene. Matthew tells us he hopes to see the end. Now, what a tragic reason for Peter to be there. There's so much sadness in that. Think about it for a second. He's been traveling with Jesus for three years. He loves him. He believes with zeal that Jesus is the Christ. He's had his life turned upside down by him, and so here he follows. But listen, he no longer follows as a disciple. You see, we know that disciples never left their teachers. If their teacher even went to death, then they did too. And so what Peter is doing here is he's following, but he isn't being a disciple. He is a confused and conflicted and fearful spectator who can't believe the things that he's seeing, and so he's there just so that he can see it to the end. Let's read on. And a servant girl came up to him and said, now that might seem borderline superfluous in terms of detail, but it isn't. Middle Eastern and Roman society was deeply stratified. Everyone knew their place. There was a ranking and a pecking order, and you knew where you fit. You know who was at the bottom? A servant girl. She had no authority, Right, almost no rights in the society. This is not someone that Peter should have feared. And yet he does. Friends, it shows us today how we tend to outsize the threats we experience when we are panicked and tired and full of emotion and full of pain. We do the same thing today. A small threat comes along and we see it as an existential threat because we don't have the emotional capacity to deal with it in the moment, and then therefore we are tempted to deny our Lord in the ways that he has called us to, even though the threat may be small. A servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Look, he just deflects, right? He doesn't even answer the charge. And he went out to the entrance. You notice the movement? So he's sitting at the fire, the girl comes to speak to him, and so what does he do? He takes some steps away. He gets just a little bit further from the heat of everything that's going on. And another servant girl, Matthew's really trying to make the point, right? Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, now she's not even directing Peter, uh, she's not even speaking to Peter directly. She's talking about Peter. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again, he denied it, this time with an oath. I do not know the man. He's not deflecting now. Now he's just in flat-out denial. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now, what's going on here? This is an interesting moment. This is a deeply prejudicial thing to say, but again, it reflects elements of that society. You see, northerners in the kingdom, they had distinguishable accents, which made them the ire of many in the south. People in the south thought northerners were uncouth, unwise, and unsophisticated. Texans get it, right? You guys are like, these are my people. I understand, right? Same thing's true today in our context and culture. But check this. Look how beautiful the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is. Because their pronunciation in the north of certain Hebrew words sounded so different, they weren't even allowed to pronounce the blessing in synagogues in Jerusalem. 
The southerners said northerners can't even say the name of God correctly, and so they can't lead our worship services down here in the holy city. Isn't this just another cool example of Jesus choosing a band of religious outsiders and misfits and outcasts and placing them in the center of this grand redemptive story? It's amazing. Verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. He's saying, you can kill me if I'm lying, right? I'm, I'm so vehement in my denial right now. And to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Oh my goodness. Sovereign King Jesus overseeing even the arrival of dawn and the crowing of a rooster to awaken Peter from his slumber and to call him back to himself. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay, first let's look at the motivation for Peter's denial. Why does he do it, right? Well, he's obviously scared. He doesn't want to be pulled into Jesus' trial. He definitely doesn't want to be implicated in any of the associated guilt that might be spoken over Jesus himself. But I think, friends, as I've been studying this text afresh, I think there's an even deeper thing going on here that is very meaningful and helpful for us in our walk of faith today. If you go back a few chapters to one of the most astonishing interactions between Jesus and Peter, which takes place in Matthew 16, I think you see the real key to what's going on in Peter's denial. Now, in Matthew 16, Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And he gets affirmed by Jesus. Jesus says, oh, you are Peter, right? And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter looks at James and John, and he's like, suckers, right? That's never been said of you. I'm the guy who gets this stuff, right? I'm the faith guy. Follow me. Look at me. I'm hype, right? And so he's so excited. And then Jesus starts suddenly, in a turn, talking about how he would have to suffer and die at the hands of men. Now look at the over-eagerness of Peter's zeal. He wades in and tries to correct the king of kings. Not a good idea. When you have to pull the Lord of the universe aside and note some of your own observations, things aren't going to go well, right? And so you see his faith, right? It's full of zeal, but it's still very shallow. He's just said, you are the Christ, and now he's going to rebuke him? You rebuke the Christ? I love Peter. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now look at this, Jesus just called him this rock, right, Upon, that's going to center himself in the, in the church, moving amazing. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not sending your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I imagine James and John are like, Who's the boss now, right? We're the sons of thunder. Like, we get this. Not, Jesus never called me Satan. <laughs> then Jesus told his disciples, listen, here's the move. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, Peter had never actually wanted a Christ who came with a cross in part because that Christ makes the demand of denial on every one of his followers. Here's what Christ says to us when he invites us to follow him. He says you have two paths, two choices. You can deny yourself or you will be denying me. You can walk with me and follow me in the way of the cross. 
the way of servanthood, the way of submission, the way of costly sacrifice, the way of agonizing love, the way of ongoing humility, or you're finding yourself standing outside in the courtyard pretending you don't know me. You see, friends, Peter was still proximate to Jesus. He's still around him, but he had stopped following him in the way of the cross. He didn't want to deny himself. And so he rather denied his Lord. Now, some of you might be saying, man, this doesn't apply to me. I would never deny Christ, right? If you grew up in the church, you, you know from any kind of teenage student gathering, there's always the example that some preacher uses, right? If someone puts a gun to your head and says, deny Christ, I just sit there going like, how is this scenario gonna take place in the suburbs of West Austin? I'm not entirely sure, right? Um, and we overestimate our cutting edge, but that's always the thing. And you go like, I will never deny Christ, right? And so you might be sitting here this morning saying, I would never. Remember, firstly, Peter made the, the same claim. <laughs> And it was a fine one to make right up until the moment that it was actually tested. But remember, secondly, that many of us are way more like Peter than we care to admit. I certainly am. We are proximate to Christ, yes. Familiar with his language, yes. Interacting with his people, amen. But it might not be said of us that we are people who are known for self-denial. That we are people who are becoming more and more Christ-like. That we are people who are known to take up our cross and to follow him with sacrificial love. That we are people who, who are famous for living like him, manifesting the virtues of the Sermon on the Mount in increasing measure. I don't know if that would be said of me. Why? We aren't well practiced at denying ourselves. And yet this is the way of Jesus. <laughs> Friends, I think we've tried to fit into culture for so long that now when we live faithfully and then we experience rejection, we mistake rejection for persecution. We were always supposed to stick out like sore thumbs in a culture that is teaching people that self-denial is the opposite of the path to joy and fulfillment. Are you listening to the messages of culture today? Be all you want to be. It sounds right, right? It sounds good, but when you start to pull it apart, experience all you want to experience. If it feels good, do it. Why would you deny yourself any pleasure, right? Here's the problem. I think that zeitgeist has gone into our midst. And what happens is we end up making a, a compromised following of Christ where we end up making a similar trade to Peter's. We're not good at self-denial. I'm not good at it. And so we don't want to deny ourselves and we end up doing many things that actually end up denying our savior. I mean, think about it. All sin is actually a denial of Christ's lordship. Have you thought about that? You might not actively say with your mouth, I deny Christ's lordship. But when you take the offer of temptation in, 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 you know, in a choice over Christ's clear teaching, you're denying his lordship. You're denying the truth of what he told you and you're pursuing a lie in its stead. We all do that. Friends, where are you denying Christ? Because you won't deny yourself. You're denying his very clear teachings on, on the power of money and how it's a trap for your heart because you can't think about the possibility in West Austin of denying yourself the comfort of its security, the fulfillment that its purchases offer. I feel that, I wrestle with that all the time. Are you denying his clear teachings on neighbor love? because you can't deny yourself the security that comes from some air of superiority and on being on the right side of a philosophy and having good arguments that get, manages to shut people down? Are you denying his clear commandments on enemy forgiveness? <laughs> because you can't really deny yourself the security of the blanket of bitterness 
that feels like it keeps you safe, but actually just isolates you? Are you denying the promise of his powerful grace by thinking you should rather spend your energy managing your image instead of running to transparent repentance? We deny his promise because we won't deny our own reputation. Our friends, you see, you see, the way of the cross is so radical. The Christ of the cross is so countercultural. And the danger today is that we could end up being kind of close to him, but not actually committed to radically following him. If we won't deny ourselves, we will end up denying him. Okay, what's Peter's motivation? It's a fear of self-denial, and we suffer from it too. Second, consider the progression of Peter's denial. It moves so quickly. It's so beautifully told by Matthew. It's so wonderfully staged for him. You can really picture the scene. If you know the structure of the high priest's palace, and I'm sure you all do, I mean, what else would you do with your spare time but study the structure of the high priest's palace in Jerusalem in the, in the first century? But if you know that, you will see in the narrative, Peter moves further and further away from his Lord with each denial. He's pretty close, he's right there, and then he moves a little bit further away, and then he moves a little bit further away, and by the end of the story, he's only just uh, able to see Jesus, and Jesus is only just able to see him. And here's what happens, friends. <laughs> With each denial, he grows more vociferous, and each denial grows more heinous. You see why? Because denying Jesus leads to distance from Jesus. And then your distance from Jesus makes it easier to deny Jesus. And the cycle just continues. Peter goes from some pretty abstract gaslighting. There's no other term for it, right? Of the first servant girl. She asks a good question. He's like, I don't know what you mean, servant girl, right? And he just kind of like just deflects, right? So then he goes with an oath. Oh, I swear I do not know the man, right? Which, which is he's basically putting his hand on a Bible and our equivalent saying, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I don't know the man. And then in the third one, he's now pronouncing a curse. He's saying, not only do I promise I don't know the man, but if I'm lying, you can kill me. I pronounce a curse upon myself. Isn't it amazing to consider that Peter is willing to pronounce a curse over himself at the exact same moment that Jesus is absorbing the curse of death on his behalf? Jesus is going, Peter, that won't be necessary. I'm already taking care of that curse. Friends, here's the cycle that I see on repeat in my life, right? I don't know your life, I don't live in your house, right? Which is good news for everybody, really. Um, but let me just talk about me for a second. Can we talk about me? I don't feel like we've spoken about me enough. Um, following Jesus is a wonderful adventure. It's the best way to live. It's magnificent. And it will present you daily with choices of costly sacrifice. And every day I am faced with, do I deny myself or do I deny my Lord? <laughs> Oftentimes I choose to deny my Lord instead of denying myself. And in a moment I embrace sin. And as I do it, I instantly feel myself moving further away from him. Have you guys felt that? Moment after sin where you realize it was a lie, it wasn't worth it, and now I feel I mean, it's not true in the heavenlies, but I feel separated from him. And then what happens? I'm faced with the same choice again. The antidote, of course, is repentance. <laughs> repentance is a turning, 
It's refusing to back away in the courtyard and get further and further away. Rather, it's a turning and going straight back towards Jesus, who's the safest one to be near to when you've just sinned. (laughs) But we don't do it. We drift and we get further and further away. Friends, some of you are drifting. (laughs) Becomes increasingly easy to deny Christ. As you drift further and further away from him, don't. Stop. Turn. Repent. Don't let it progress. All right, thirdly, let's consider the gracious pain of Peter's denial. Look at this, and immediately the rooster crowed. It strikes me that God in his sovereignty calls the rooster to crow in that moment. That's a clarion call of repentance to Peter. It's not a condemnation gong. It's like, Peter, you see, I told you this would happen. Now come back to me. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. What a painful scene. Can you imagine? Just think about the humanness of this. Peter is exhausted. Sun's about to come up. They haven't slept, right? They haven't slept from the night before. He's probably hungry. They didn't get to eat the Passover lamb. There must be many times in the night, they're like, why did we leave out the lamb, right? He's confused. He's hurt. He's terrified. And now he's absolutely mortified by what he has done. Christ's identity as the Messiah has just been confirmed again as Peter remembers the bleak prophecy of his denial. He has just done something that he never thought he was capable of doing. And the person who has loved him better than anyone else is now going to his death with his denial still in his ears. Here's what makes it even more stark. Matthew doesn't record this for us, but Luke twenty two sixty one 61 tells us that Jesus looks at Peter this moment. He looks across the courtyard and their eyes meet as Peter sees him from a distance. Oh my friends, can you imagine that look? What do you think the eyes of Christ have for Peter in this moment? It's hard to know. But knowing how Jesus goes on to restore Peter, we can only conclude that this look was way more significant than pure indignation or condemnation. The way my heart works is if I think if Jesus were to look at me in my worst moment, that's what he's saying, gotcha. I can't believe it. Told you you would do this. You're despicable. But yet through the story of Peter's restoration, we know that this look must have way more than that. When Jackie Hill Perry tried to imagine what this look was like, she imagined it simply with this statement. I love it. She said, I imagine it simply was what grace and truth looked like. If you want an image of both grace and truth, Peter gets it in the look of Jesus in this moment. The truth of like, I see you as you really are. (laughs) I see you at your worst. There's no deflecting. And I invite you to still be part of my kingdom, even in this your worst moment. Jackie isn't alone in that imagination. Spurgeon said, and forgive me for the lengthy quote, but golly, it's the Spurge, guys. Um, and we haven't actually assembled as the Austin Stone without a lengthy Spurgeon quote, right? It doesn't even count as a gathering until we've done it. So, so, so here we go. But just listen to Spurgeon's pastoral imagination as he expresses this. He says, the next thing that touched Peter and the main thing was the look of Christ. It is not possible for any one of us to give such a look as that. It was such a look as Jehovah gave to the primeval darkness when he said, let there be light. And the darkness was dissipated by one glance of Jehovah's eye. So the darkness which the devil had cast over Peter's soul was made to fly by one flash from the eye of Jesus. 
There were volumes of meaning in that look. Is that Peter who declared that he would never deny me? Remember, Peter, what I said and what you answered and see which one of us turns out to be right. That look also said to Peter, all these griefs and all this shame that I am enduring do not pierce me so keenly to the heart as your denial does, truth. Yet was it not also a look of inexpressible tenderness as if the master said by it, I love you still, Peter. So come back to me and I will yet restore you. I think it was a heart piercing look and a heart healing look all in one. A look which revealed to Peter the blackness of his sin and also the tenderness of his master's heart towards him. Oh, friends. If you were to visualize the look of Christ at your worst moment, what would it communicate to you? Surely, it would say to you that I see you as you really are. The worst of the worst, there's no hiding from me. I see what you have done. But surely it would also say, and I love you. And I invite you back into my fellowship. Don't drift further away. Come nearer. It's safest to be with me when you are at your worst. And here's what we know. This pain, this pain of this moment leads Peter to deep repentance. It's fascinating and stark that this text backs up to the text of Judas's despair. Both land up in deep pain due to their betrayal of Christ. One experiences repentance and return. The other experiences the despair of death without the reception of mercy. You see, friends, there's a pain that comes from conviction that is a good thing, a sweet mercy. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You want a life without regret? Well, then you have to regret your sin. That's how you get it. The pure tagline of live a life with no regrets doesn't work because you still regret the things you did. And what do you do with that? Well, when you take them to God in honest repentance, then you're able to live in a life that has salvation without regret. Whereas godly, worldly grief produces death. It's not enough to just be sad. That sadness has to lead to repentance. And so friends, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you and if it hurts, thank him. That's the rooster crowing in your life, calling you back to himself, the safest place to be. You might ask, well, how are we sure that Peter genuinely repents? All it says here is that he, he weeps bitterly. Well, we have evidence of his restoration and transformation which are so powerful. Peter goes on to be restored and to be a totally different sort of leader who's able to stand before governors and princes and faithfully call them to Christ. He is able later in his life to endure beatings and imprisonments and false allegations and poverty, all for the sake of his king. He is able ultimately to imitate his Lord and to take up his own cross as he is crucified in his old age. That's amazing. He's able to deny himself. But consider this, this blew my mind this week and there's a danger in introducing like a key teaching moment in minute 32 and I understand it, I'm sorry, bear with me, I'm getting better, all right? But this is astonishing, this blew my mind this week. One of the key evidences of Peter's repentance is that this text still exists today. <laughs> Do you know that Peter was responsible for the collation of the lot of the records that go on to form our four gospels? 
We're told that Mark's gospel is recorded first and that Matthew leans heavily on Mark's gospel. I don't know if you knew that. It's amazing. It's incredible how we get these four different accounts so diverse and so unified. And we're told that Mark got his gospel recording primarily from the, from the recordings of Peter, both from his oral tradition and stuff he wrote down. And what's in Mark's gospel? Peter's denial of Christ. How certain must Peter be in the grace of God that when it comes to tell the story of his life, he goes, make sure the denial goes in there. If it's me, I'm going like, hey, guys, I was super hungry. We hadn't slept. Like, it wasn't as bad as that girl made it out to me. I I was just confused, disoriented. Let's let's leave that one out, right? Let's get back to like, hey, you are Peter and on this rock. I'll boom it. That was a good day, right? While we're at it, can we take the get behind me Satan part out? Because that one, that was super weird, right? But he doesn't. Why? He believes with confidence in the grace of God. Surely he would want to defend his own reputation, but no. He's so determined to make much of Christ's grace that he's happy for his own failings to be recorded forever in order to highlight that. Finally, Peter gets it and he's prepared to deny himself and walk in the way of the cross because he understands fully the grace of his Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth Fox, a sister of the Order of St. Benedict, has written, it is commonly supposed that Peter himself must have painfully revealed his denial to the other disciples. He must confess this to them at some point. Think about that. Perhaps for their strengthening. No one else, except perhaps for the other disciple in John, was there to witness the event. And it is quite unlikely that such a disparaging story of the community's leader would have circulated if it were not true. It is indeed a beautiful and endearing quality for leaders to be able to confess their own weaknesses to those who look to them for guidance and compassion. Isn't that incredible? And that, friends, actually is the picture of Christian faith. That, friends, is actually the picture we should be looking to in Christian leadership. That's the one that we should be holding tightly today. Oh, we've got it so upside down as we continue to see church leaders fall in our day and we wonder why? They're not supposed to be set apart people who pretend to be better than everyone else and who tightly guard their images, hoping to deflect any of the defects of their obvious sin. When the true power of leadership and modeling this would actually be seen when people get to see them as they really are. And so then would be forced to celebrate the real hero of everyone's story, which is not them and not me, but Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, dear friends, Don't miss the opportunity to repent. Because in doing so, you allow other people to experience you as you really are. How much of our life is spent desperately hoping that people won't figure out who we really are. But it's only in that revelation that we can actually be loved as a beloved sinner. I love what the good bishop, St. Augustine, said. I've got this quote next to my desk because I need to repent every day, right? But he said, be ashamed when you sin, but don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound, repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame, repentance by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. And that's why so many of us never get to feel the restoration of Christ. Okay, lastly, let's consider we're nearly done. The response of Christ to Peter's denial. 
Matthew doesn't record it, but let's look at John 21, 15. The resurrected Christ comes back to engage Peter. And what does he first do? He makes him breakfast. <laughs> I love that. We would be like, okay, let's call a conference. There's the work to do global domination in Christianity's name. Let's go, right? First he goes like, I'm gonna cook you something on the beach. And so he makes a fire and he grills some fish. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. My friends, isn't it beautiful? Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to express his love, one for each denial, showing him again and again how restoration works. And straight after this, he tells Peter how he will die. That's what comes next. He's like, okay, so you love me? Just remember, it's about self-denial. Someone else is gonna stretch out your arms and they're gonna put you to death because of me, all right? And you're gonna be able to endure it this time. He will get to take up his cross. And then at the end of all of that, in verse 21, 19, he says, after saying this to them, he said, follow me. Friends, this is, Peter must have wept at this moment. You know why? Because Jesus is saying to him, I'm still your rabbi. You're still my disciple. Oh, the beauty of that invitation. Christ is saying to Peter in that moment, you have failed me, but guess what? I have not failed you. And I still have meaningful work for you to do in the kingdom. And doesn't Peter go on to do it? The man who had been scared of a young servant girl will go on to oppose emperors in Jesus' name. Why? Because he is certain and sure of the grace of Jesus Christ because he has experienced it, because he has needed it. You know what the last recorded written words of Peter are? They're beautiful. 2 Peter 3.18, the last ink he spills to a beloved church. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is he saying? There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And there's nothing more extravagant than his grace. Grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the knowledge of him. And then look how he ends. Peter doesn't want to center himself in the story. Who does he want to be the hero of the story? To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So now you guys can hear any story about me you like, because it's not about me. It's about the one who gets eternal praise and glory. Friends, we will all be tempted to deny Christ when we don't want to deny ourselves, I get it. Here's the key, don't drift further from Christ. Don't do it. Run back to him today with the certainty of his mercy. Friends, consider, if Christ's eyes were to meet yours today, what do you think he would communicate? If he looked at Peter and loved him and forgave him and restored him, then surely he can do the same for us. I asked at the start, what do you wanna be famous for? How about we, like Peter, wanna be famous for nothing else but the extravagant grace of our King Jesus? I don't really even wanna be remembered for my virtues anymore. My life would be considered a win if at the end of the day, people would say, 
there went a very weak man who enjoyed and believed in the unstoppable grace and mercy of his king. That would be a win. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I confess that I have denied your son many times because I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to do it. I want to have everything I want to have. I don't want to make sacrifices. I don't want to follow the way of the cross. I want to live in the victory and the joy that it brings, but I don't want to have to carry one. Oh, Lord, forgive me. (laughs) Father, I can't persuade anyone here, either of the weight of their sin or of the magnificence of your mercy. And so I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to do that work. Want the rooster crow in some of our lives this morning? I'm just struck when I think of it, Father. It's just come to mind right now that the rooster crows is a sign of a new morning. And what does Lamentations 3 tell us? That every new morning there's new mercies. And so that rooster wasn't crying condemnation. He was crying the possibility of mercy for Peter. Won't you send that signal to us today? It's a new day. There's new mercies for every failing. Help us to be bold repenters. Not interested in image protection. Interested only in the grace of God and, and how you get to, to get your glory through our lives, even through our weakness and sin and folly. Lord, move in our midst. We want to follow you. We don't want you to be proximate to your son. We want to follow him. Help us to do that in certainty of grace and in the power of the precious Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.